Welcome to CPF Firewire, a podcast from California professional firefighters where we discuss a wide range of issues affecting firefighters, our unions, our families, and the communities we serve. Hello and welcome to another edition of the CPF Firewire. I'm Brian Rice, president of the California Professional Firefighters. This July marks the one-year anniversary of the devastating fire aboard the USS Bonham Richard in San Diego. The Richard's an amphibious assault ship that was docked in San Diego for maintenance and refitting when the fire occurred deep in a storage locker. The fire burned for four days, resulted in 61 injuries that included both civilian and Navy firefighting personnel. The firefight itself was difficult. Firefighters were forced to navigate narrow smoke-filled corridors. But beyond the injuries and the damage, the fire exposed the firefighters to just a, a haze of toxic substances that were released uh, during the fire. Federal Fire San Diego was the first in on the fire, and many other agencies participated alongside dozens of Navy firefighters. Federal Firefighters Local F-33 has been at the forefront of working to get the Department of Defense to come clean about the nature of the exposures so they can protect their members. Joining us to talk about the fire and those efforts is Ian Piccolo, the president of Federal Firefighter San Diego, local F-33. Ian, welcome to the Firewire. Hey, Brian. Thanks for uh, having us. Uh, appreciate you guys taking the time to uh, talk to us. It's um, This will actually be, I mean, we're here for a couple of reasons, but definitely it's our first kind of operational podcast and the after effects. Ian, tell me a little bit about yourself, how long you've been um with Federal Fire and F-33 and how you got uh, got involved in the union? Yeah, for sure. I, uh, I actually started out with Forest Service um, over here in Ramona, California. I started in 2008 uh, with them. In 2009, I was hired on to uh, actually as a volunteer with San Diego County Fire Authority, who was under contracts with uh, CAL FIRE to provide uh, rural fire services. In 2010, I got hired with the feds. I spent four years down in El Centro aboard Naval Air Facility, El Centro, the uh, Blue Angels uh, winter home. Um, There, I started in the union as a secretary treasurer. It just happened to be that uh, nobody really wanted the job. (laughs) So I I took it upon myself to join up. I was was motivated and uh, I really didn't know much about the union. And and so I started learning. Transferred over to San Diego in 2014. Uh, I became a steward uh, in 2014 with uh, F-33. We had a vacated vice president spot. So the board elected me vice president. And then when Masoni left, uh, I was elected uh, president of uh, F-33 and that's 2020. A lot of us don't really, I mean, we understand the fire protection um, on federal and military installations, but what we don't understand um, are kind of the protecting the assets, whether um, uh, they're airplanes or in this case, ships um, and submarines. But can you tell us a little bit, like as an F-33 member and you protect the the shipyards in San Diego, what's that all about? What At any one time, what kind of uh, ships can you find in port and, and what on a typical day when you look out, what, what kind of exposure do you see? Besides the obvious, we're, we're all risk uh, agency. We respond to structure fires, EMS calls, uh, a- any type of, of call within, within the base. Um, and we have our mutual aid partner, San Diego City. Um, they border many of our uh, bases here. 
along with uh, National City and uh, Chula Vista and Imperial Beach. Um, so we have bases all along uh, the San Diego coast there from the border up until Point Loma. Um, yeah, we, uh, we do crash fire rescue as well. So we do take care of the aircraft uh, when they take the wire or any in-flight emergency, we're there. Um, and then as far as the ships are concerned, we have um, quite a large uh, array of ship, almost any, you know, any ship that you can think of that the military has uh, on the Navy side gets docked at 32nd Street. Typically, we are not a place that major repairs and major overhaul and maintenance take place. We're not a shipyard. Um, we're not classified as a shipyard. So there's there's more inherent risk and dangers uh, when you have that sort of stuff going on on base. Um, and we're just not set up to handle that. So <clears throat> they are looking at reclassifying uh, Naval Base 32nd Street. Um, hopefully they do. but. As far as the ships are concerned, um, we are not their primary firefighting force. The ships are fully self-contained. Everybody on the ship is a firefighter. Um, so when we get these type of calls, we're there as a support. And in the case of the Bonham Richard, that overwhelmed the ship's forces very, very quickly. And uh, we became the primary uh, along with all our mutual aid partners and everybody that responded there. As far as uh, what you can find on the ship, it, it's not a lot of common combustibles. There's not a lot of stuff that can burn on the ship uh, besides the hydrocarbons, the JP5, um, you have all the fuel that, that they use. Uh, and then there's a lot of hazardous materials on the ship. So they usually have a hazardous material representative there that we can talk to and, and, you know, primarily little uh, oil grease fires is what you'll find um, that we respond to. What, um, like the Bonham Richard, uh, what kind of a ship is it? You know, how big is it? How many personnel when it goes to sea, how many personnel are on it to operate it and, and kind of what's its primary mission? Yeah. So it's a, a LHD. It's a WASP, uh, WASP class amphibious assault, um, primarily for helicopters to land and troop carriers in the docks. Um, so it's it's forward operations uh, within the seas when it's just too long of a, a stretch for um, aircraft to make it. Aircraft land, refuel, reservice, uh, they get whatever they need and they can carry and launch from there um, to go wherever the mission is. Um, so I think we have eight of them in the fleet. The Bonham Richard, uh, I don't know how many um, people it actually carries when... Uh, it's operational. Um, I'm sure it's, it's into the thousands. The, uh, I mean, it, it supports Marine expeditionary forces. Uh, so it, it can have a wide range of uh, people on the ship when it's doing its operations. Um, like I said, I think we have uh, eight of them and the Bonham Richard was in docks uh, preparing to accommodate the F-35, the new joint strike fighter. Um, it wasn't set up to do this. It wasn't its main mission or intention. Um, but I think as a cost savings plan, the military selected, uh, the Bonham Richard to, uh, to do double duty and, uh, accommodate the new joint strike fighter. 
the maintenance or the stuff that was going on, it was a little bit more than just regular maintenance. There was some, kind, I guess, kind of retrofitting and things done. How many naval firefighters were actually or are actually present when a ship's in that status? Like how many firefighters would be assigned by the Navy to protect that ship? We don't know exactly how many people um, that they require for that to happen. Um, usually this type of stuff happens in dry dock where they fully remove the, the boat from the water. Um, it usually happens at a shipyard. And uh, so fire and, and things never happen when you want them to happen, right? <laughs> so <laughs> the, uh, the ship... It, on a Sunday, they have lower amounts of crew and staff available. Everybody's out enjoying uh, their Saturday, Sundays off. So already they were shorted uh, personnel. Um, so it, and being that large of a ship, um, you know, just such a, a, a wide area to cover. You have maybe 60 people on the on the boat. Um, they all have their assigned areas you know, people providing fire watch, but you also have the contractors and, and the folks doing work uh, on the boat as well. So with that, the, the, it, it was a perfect storm Sunday, low crew. Um, our people were, were down um, because of the Navy. Navy takes uh, operational risk management and shorts us positions as a cost savings. So they don't have to pay overtime. Um, so if you look at isn't it funny how efficiency and cost savings always equals less staff and and higher risk for for firefighters um kind of a follow-up on all that um so you're you're there it's a sunday uh most of the sailors are working their liberty there's a skeleton crew you all were on duty um tell me let's let's the call comes in how did it come in um, what were your thoughts during response? And then what was your initial size up upon arrival? What were you faced with? Just uh, around 8.30 Sunday morning, call came in for a uh, ship fire, Pier 2. The first arriving crew, which is Station 16, is on 32nd Street. They have two engines and an ALS box. Typically, you would find uh, four firefighters assigned to each you know, apparatus. Um, and two on the box. We're dual role, so all of our ambulances carry our firefighting gear. We have SCBAs, so we can respond as well. So your first in engine had two people on it, a captain and a, a relief driver. And uh, the second engine in had its full complement, and then we had two on the box. So you're already down two people uh, first arriving. The uh, captain went up to the quarter deck. Uh, typically, we meet the ship's crew there. Okay, um, so let's wait. Hold on. What's the quarter deck and how do we get there? <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming once they were on the quarter deck, you're on board the ship. Yeah. So they go meet the uh, the crew on the quarter deck. Um, basically, you take the, the ramp, if you would, if you're looking at a, like a cruise liner or whatever, you get the ramp up and, and then you're on the boat. <clears throat> so uh, the initial, um, you know, outlay from the photos, I think, they're all floating online, but you could see that there was definitely something that you were going to have to work at. There was smoke pouring from quite a few spots in, in the vessel. Um, and then as soon as the captain made uh, contact with the ship's crew, they obviously asked for our assistance. And then uh, they had to game plan on where the, the fire was. So it was a lot of smoke, a lot of heat, but uh, not a lot of flame. 
like I said, there's not a lot to burn. However, in this particular instance, the fire where they, and the reports aren't completely out yet. So it's still under investigation. So I will um, say that, but where the fire was uh, possibly started in the storage vehicle ramp area, um, that deck of the ship, uh, it's a, it's a few decks down and it's this huge, massive, just open area to store vehicles and, and, you know, huge storage area and trying to find and navigate a proper path to the fire. Um, I was just speaking with one of the firefighters that was pulling hose through there. Um, and one of the first ones to kind of set up firefighting operations, they kept running out of hose, trying to find the fire. Um, they were 600 feet deep uh, of hose and uh they were having to pop hose packs and and we have breakaway nozzles just for this very instance breakaway put another 100 foot put another 200 foot and uh, still trying to find the fire so there was just a lot of smoke in the beginning um not too much uh you couldn't see any flames and uh just a lot of smoke and heat as and the quarterback the quarter deck which is right off of the you know if you it would fig you picture the side of a boat where you can see right into the boat and and it's kind of open air area and then you start walking into little spaces that's that's what we're talking about right there um and that was tenable there was not a lot of smoke there it was it was okay you you were off air and you were talking to these people when um you were saying that some of the members were were laying in about 600 feet of hose um and what kind of conditions were they encountering in that big space was it was it smoky uh, warm smoke, hot smoke, drive them to their knees. Were they upright? Was the visibility, you know, hand in front of the face or a little bit better than that? Yeah. So for a few, several hundred feet, they could see where they were going. Um, they were pushing through. Uh, as far as the smoke was concerned, it was, it, it, as closer they got to the, to the lower V, it was getting hotter. Um, if you really think about it, this whole ship is metal. Um, and then heat transfer. So not a lot of times if you're walking down into the ship, you're going to want to be on your knees. But, um, you know, the, <clears throat> the way that the, the ship was and the contractors working on there, usually you can, you know, start shutting down compartments inside the ship, um, shutting down breezeways, kind of solidify and trap the fire where we can. There was cabling running through um, all these uh, hatches so you couldn't shut the door you know the hatches there was metal um there was a bunch of uh just contractor stuff um materials all over the ship so they were having a hard time navigating around some of that stuff and then they couldn't use any of the door control methods that we would typically use but it was definitely hot it was smoky as the closer they got to the lower v which they knew the fire was there they just didn't have a, a complete good route to get there. You see, you use this term a couple times, lower V. Uh, just the low, the lower vehicle storage deck area. Okay, yeah. Um, that's where the fire was reported to have started. And, and that's that big storage area that they were talking about. Um, so when they were making their way down there, um, yeah, of course it was getting much more, uh, much more intense as far as heat is concerned and much more smoky. I know you guys had to go a long ways in. Did you, as we all kind of think about it, but you know, it's hard if you, if you aren't in there, or you don't have experience with it. It's very hard to get a picture in your mind. Were you guys operating on, on a deck level that was below the water line or, um, or close to it? You know how, I guess, 
what I would say was how many stories, you know, we look at the deck and it's like, how many floors below that did you guys have to penetrate into? If you're talking about uh, the zero deck of the ship, like where uh, you would walk onto and where the aircraft go, it was about three or four below there. So at the waterline, no, it wasn't at the waterline at all. It it was still above the waterline. So as far as those cooling, you know, like the water, you know, dissipating the heat through the metal. Um, it wasn't, uh, any of that. It was still above that quite a few. I think the ship has 14 decks, um, in, you know, in the scheme of things, if you want to look at it, like a high rise, um, 14 levels. Uh, so yeah, it was just a few, uh, decks below. Um, but there was scaffolding there. Um, and, uh, there was, uh, stuff was just getting so hot that the, the non-skid, um, that, that goes on that adheres to the, to the metal was melting and it was getting gummy. So it was just hot all over. (laughs) Any, um, so as you guys got in there closer, um, in the kind of the smoke conditions, um, I'm going to make an assumption that, um, most of the smoke coming out of there was probably pretty thick and black. Yeah. Um, and, and who knew what was burning at the time? We didn't know really what was burning, but there was scaffolding down there. Um, and as far as the investigation is concerned, I don't know this to be hundred percent true, but they had put all their firefighting gear, um, down there in the storage area. And so I think that all of their, a large majority of their gear was on fire too. Um, so there was just a bunch of stuff down there that was uh, sm- smoking and, and uh, giving off toxic fumes and whatnot. Um, yeah. So during, um, if I recall correctly, there were a couple of explosions during the course of um, the firefight. And I think the first day um, kind of w- walk us through a little bit of that in, um, you know, were they close calls were, were um, the men and women out of, out of that area when they happened or did they find themselves in the middle of it? The first explosion, I think, happened a couple hours after the uh, start of the fire. Um, they had not made their way to what you would call the seat of the fire yet. They hadn't found, you know, the conditions of, of the flames and stuff like that. Um, the explosion was most likely ha- happened in that um, vehicle storage area or the, the storage decks that they had down there. Um, and from what one of the firefighters was telling me is that he heard reports that it was a JP five, uh, housing, um, line for, uh, like jet fuel that exploded the, the, uh, even though that that ship was being retrofit and, uh, upgraded the, it still had all the fuel, uh, on board. So I, I think they had a million gallons of fuel um, that they were running off of that, or that they could run off of. I don't know why they didn't take it out, but um, the fuel is kept under the waterline. So that wasn't too big of a concern for anybody. Um, as far as when the explosion happened, as far as I can tell, um, and from accounts of it, that n- nobody was inside performing interior firefighting operations most of them were regrouping and and coming back and uh on the gangway to go to the ship and whatnot um 
the explosion happened, pretty big explosion, knocked a couple of people back. Um, I heard a couple of reports, you know, like Daryl Roberts um, got blown back. Um, quite a few of our guys got blown back. And then there was a call made, hey, everybody off the ship um, that was on, in and around it, we're going to pull back and regroup. And firefighting didn't commence for quite a while um, after that because they were trying to figure out what was going on and what was actually making those explosions happen and then what we could do to mitigate that. Did while the kind of while everybody was regrouping, did it did it look like the fire was worsening or is it just kind of holding um, holding in place? Um, yeah, I can't speculate on that one. I don't uh, I don't actually know, but um, you know, smoke continued to pour out from there. So um, it, it, it had already advanced past this stage of where we contain it. Um, now it was just pushing it back where we could start shutting down things and, and kind of getting a hold of it. Um, and it's not like a lot of stuff was on fire. Yes, there, you know, it's just, it's so many passageways of just smoke and heat trapped. Um, because then again, it's just a big metal box. <laughs> yeah. It's like all the principles that we use to evacuate superheated smoke and gases. It's like, they don't apply. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nowhere, I mean, you're not cutting a hole in the deck. You're not cutting a hole in the side. Um, you know, all the things that we would normally use, you can't, you, you can't do it. Um, Ian, so you guys were there um, for days, if I, if I have my facts right. And so um, exposure-wise, um, let's just talk about the exposure. You know, you, you, you go to the incident, you know, you probably work, how many hours? Did, I'm assuming some people worked 18 to 24 hours on that thing before they were released. Is that somewhat accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. Um, one of the, the hardest things that we were talking about, there's so many things to learn from this fire for us. Um, because you're not attacking it like a normal structure fire or a vehicle fire. It's, it, it did burn from Sunday to, I think, Wednesday night is when they finally got a hold of it and called it like, hey, we got extinguishment, but now we got to still evacuate the smoke and get the hot spots done. So it was still smoking days after. But um, one of those things that we kind of have to look at it like is this large scale incident, like almost a, a brush fire. The operational periods weren't um, set up uh, initially. Um, we just didn't have that capacity or capability or forethought to, hey, we need to start people on 12-hour shifts. And, and number one, we didn't have that many people. Um, San Diego City showed up, and they were there for about four hours. Um, but after that, uh, I, I believe their chiefs made the call to pull their, their guys out, um, because of the explosions and, and what was going on. So, um, that's just something that we have to, to push through and kind of work with our mutual aid partners to make sure that we're on the same page and they have the, the training like we do. Um, obviously the, the Navy, we are the Navy insurance policy. Um, so pulling our guys out and stopping attacking the fire wasn't going to happen for us. Um, but the, uh, the operational periods, yeah. Um, some people were exposed to more than, you know, 12 hours, 14 hours, uh, 24 hours, and then went back the next day to, uh, to re to reengage. 
Um, and it's, it's not like the water, uh, dissipates or goes other places while it's in there. So all these places are watertight. So you're walking through. <laughs> yeah. I know that, um, men and women were operating there for long hours. Did you guys, um, did you have any kind of immediate physical effects like flu, like symptoms, you know, headaches, um, nausea, could you, um, did you have stuff that um, you picked up off of that, you know, that long-term intense um, exposure? We had several members with uh, shortness of breath, chest pain, kind of stuff like that, flu-like symptoms after, um, difficulty breathing. Um, during, during, we had a couple injuries. Uh, they were dealt with. Uh, quite a few people were, uh, it, it was hot, um, quite a few people with heat exhaustion. Um, they were pulled out, rehab, IVs, um, and they were like, I'm not going to the hospital. I'm going to go back in. So they went back in, but yeah, um, it, it was right in the middle of this pandemic too. So we're, we don't have our own regulators. We're sharing SCBA bottles and regulators. We have our own masks. Um, we have, uh, occupational health on base. That's who deals with our, our people typically. But since it was flu-like symptoms, shortness of breath, cough, they didn't want to see our people because it was, you know, the COVID stuff. So then they were referring us outside to our primary care, you know, physicians and our primary care was like, oh, this is a occupational problem. You need to go to your occupational portion of the, so it was just a. You guys got kind of, you guys got kind of run around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, in the days in the days to come, were you able to um, identify any of the specific toxins, um, or are you in the process of that yet? How forthcoming has the Navy and the Department of Defense been with you guys? Are they pretty open and honest? You know, this is a type of paint we use. It contains the following, you know, substances. Or do you have to battle just just to find out what was in this ship? What are they telling you? Yeah, they, they haven't told us much. I haven't reached out uh, above our leadership um, as far as information is concerned. The You, you yourself, uh, Mike Fay, uh, Charlie Martinez, you guys reached out pretty uh, early on. We got on that conference call um, very early on, and I really appreciate that. Um, so that kind of pushed us into uh, dealing with the IAFF. And uh, Jim Johnson helped out. Uh, he sent us over to Raquel Siegel, I think it was, the IFF occupational um, health person. They got us in touch with uh, Virginia Weaver and some doctors from um, Johns Hopkins Research. And so uh, with, with all your efforts, with our efforts here at F33, we drafted a letter um, I, I did have to do some things. There wasn't any air monitoring um, during the initial firefighting operations. San Diego uh, County does collect air samples from around the county, just you know, periodically. They did get um, access to place one near where we were here at uh, Pier Two, and they also have one pretty close off a uh, offsite uh, to the base. So I collected all that data. I sent that over. One of our guys who does help with the Navy school here um, for the sailors has access to the manual um, that the military has. 
And then they have a list of common, you know, toxic stuff, toxic materials that you'll find on, on the uh, ships. So all of that got sent over to uh, Johns Hopkins. They drafted a letter for our members. Um, it's not totally encapsulating. It's not like a end all be all um, for our members, but we do have, you know, a letter, Hey, you were on this fire. This is what you were probably exposed to. And this is verifiably what you were exposed to in the air, probably at higher concentrations, um, just inherent to firefighting. And then, so every member has that letter and they can take that and put that in their jacket, um, as far as, uh, their, their health, uh, medical record, um, tying all of that in it's, you know, we, we talk about uh, presumptive laws and stuff like that. As far as federal firefighters, we don't have any presumption. However, we do have that cancer registry that the IFF has been pushing. Greg Russell and the IFF have been pushing for a presumptive. Um, I think that's on the docket right now, if, if I'm not mistaken. Um, personal exposure reporting, Ian, are all your guys members of PER and have they filled out personal exposure reports? And and here's the the other part of this. Even if even a year later they can do it retroactively, we will make sure um, that a staff person at CPF is available to help. If anybody forgot, I meant to any of that, get them in touch with Charlie, and let's make sure that that happens because that's going to be very important to you guys. And I also think along with that is the behavioral health component of it too. Um, it's kind of one of those sentinel incidents. And, you know, if you're battling your way in and you're 800 feet in on the end of a, a nozzle and your, your, your bell goes off, you know, that, that there's just things that happen that are going to be sentinel to you and your well-being, and, and give you those thoughts. All those things need to be recorded and not taken for granted. So I'm off my high horse. You know, Ian, as, as we talk about the the exposures and the toxins and, and so much of the unknowns. And, and unfortunately there's incidents like this, that you learn things as you, as you go along. And one of the things that struck me just sitting here talking to you that, um, you know, I want to, I want to talk about in the future that we have something set up that we can um, get our members blood tested immediately. You know, if it's right off the incident um, I wish I would have thought of that while it was going on, but it really, um, there's there's so there's so many toxins in there we don't know about, but an initial um, initial blood work could have been very very helpful. RI is on that. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny that you mentioned that um, strong work by CPF and IFF. We have that uh, paid for now. We get blood tested for PFAS and PFOA, um, so that's in there. And so now all of the federal firefighters have that available when we do our yeah, yearly physicals. It is something that um, you have to ask for, but all of our members here at F33 know when they go do their yearly physical, ask for the blood draw. It's expensive, but it's authorized through Congress and, and we got that done. So now we can at least take baseline um, vitals on, on that. And then also it, it could have come at a better time just before this fire um, to see how those levels were affected. But uh, the fact that we have it um, and then just draw another correlation between um, job-related cancer. Is there anything more that the IAFF and the CPF could be doing um, to be supportive of the members in this arena that one, we don't know of, or two, that we can just help you push the ball forward? 
I think the only things that we have left to do, um, as far as, as, uh, our part is to, you know, hit the legislative, uh, aspect again at, a uh, Congress, um, and just tout our issues and make sure they go through. Obviously keep us in tune on that because there's, I just think for the next couple of years, there's going to be things that pop up, um, health wise, the things that we didn't know that we couldn't possibly know if we need to, um, you know, push some buttons with the Department of the Navy or the DOD, you know, keep the IFF and the CPF in loop, um, in the loop between everybody, somebody knows somebody that we can help make that happen. One of the other ones for you guys, um, how is your PPE? Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to make an assumption that your PPE is the same standard that any municipality in California has going into it, but then after it's done, how'd you guys do with contamination, replacement, cleaning? Um, how did that process go for you guys? And are you happy with it or are there things that we can help um, push on your end? As far as the PPE is concerned, I would say the department has done a pretty good job of making sure that we have the PPE. It is the same standards. It's just the structural firefighting ensemble, um, according to the NFPA. Previous to that, um, we did have a push for two sets of turnouts uh, per member. Um, so So we had that, but not every member had two sets. So what they did during the incident is they opened up the warehouse. They found sets um, just inherent to the federal uh, side of things. We have quite a few transient firefighters. You know, you could work anywhere in the world with the feds. So we can transfer out um, and go to a couple of years in Spain or Greece. So it's hard to build the ensembles for the actual uh, specific person and then have two sets because it's just a huge cost burden, but they do it in, you know, regardless. Um, but we've, we kind of had to mix and match like, Hey, does this fit you? This is what your code is. This is from a different, you know, this wasn't exactly designed for you, but it has the same measurements. So we did that during the incident. Um, the only other thing I could think of, uh, think of is, washing the turnouts after an operational period if we're on this large-scale incident. Um, That's the only thing I could think of that would aid us in this because we were pretty well set up. We have contracts um, with a cleaning cleaning contract, and uh, those were done right after, and we were in our brand-new second sets, and then they sent those off to get cleaned and uh, inspected. You kind of hit on this a little bit. Um, and I don't think we can, we can't talk about it enough in Sacramento and through my career, we've always, um, my local has always included, um, federal members if they want to come with us. Mike masoni has gone a couple of times. We've had a couple other members talk to all of the membership of CPF on how important it would be to have a presumption nationwide that would cover federal firefighters. And then just how important it is to be um, not just um, how, how important it is to be in the fifth district and a member of the CPF, but how we can work together when we go to DC to lobby on behalf of not only um, municipalities, but our federal brother and sisters. Um, what does that mean and what can we accomplish in? Yeah. Um, I think United front, how many people we have in the international, how many people we have in CPF 
and just everybody uh, coming through those doors and, and talking to the representatives and backing that up. Um, it has to mean something. And we've done pretty well, obviously, um, for legislative. You guys have done pretty well, really well in California. Um, obviously, we have presumptive laws in California. Um, with the presump the federal presumption, I know it's going to be a big push. Uh, it's it's going to cost a lot of money. Um, but we have members with cancer who have had cancer, died of cancer. And uh, it, man, it would just mean so much, actually. We have this letter from the IFF. Hey, these are all the hazards risks that you guys, you know, partook in, in the, in the fire uh, on the ship. And then couple that with uh, presumptive, Hey, I was on that ship fire. I got this type of cancer and then you're taken care of. Um, I, I, it would be huge. We'll, uh, we'll use this um, as kind of a standing, standing up point for um, the presumptive on a national level. We'll make sure that we um, communicate with all of our locals to hit their congressional and Senate representatives um, in California and, and, and work pushing um our brothers and sisters in Arizona, New Mexico, Hawaii, but anybody around us, the importance of this. Ian, I want to thank you today for joining us and and for all that you and uh, local F33 members are are doing, um, and all that you that the the leadership of F33 is doing to protect your members. It does not go unnoticed. Um, please keep us posted uh, on your efforts and what's going on and what we can do as a CPF, um, both at a state and national level um, to keep the pressure on. Um, That's all I have for today. Uh, Again, Ian, I wanna thank you uh, very much for joining us uh, on the Firewire. And until next time, everybody in the field, uh, be careful. And I know that we'll talk to you soon. I'm Brian Rice and we're signing off. You can find CPF Firewire at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you find podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. You can also find CPF Firewire at the CPF website, www.cpf.org, and on the CPF YouTube page. We're always interested in getting your feedback, comments, and criticism. Tell us what you'd like to hear about. Drop us a line, info at cpf.org. CPF Firewire is a production of California Professional Firefighters. Our producer is Carol Wills. Our engineer is Matt McDermott. Please join us next month for another edition of CPF Firewire.